0: You're listening to A Journey Chris and American English. Or are you? Hello, and welcome back. So, before we get started, I have a couple of announcements to make. The first being is that I have found a co-host for this podcast. I'm super excited about that because it will allow me allow us to explore different topics and hopefully to explore these topics with more depth than what we are currently doing. Also, I was originally supposed to have a guest for today's episode, but unfortunately I made a mistake and I entered the wrong time into my calendar. (laughs) That's because uh, my guests and I are in two different time zones and I mislabeled my appointments so I'm terribly sorry about that and hopefully we will be able to um, make that up in the near future today's episode and last week's episode will kind of be similar in that it will be about the export of American culture but this time with respect to the language itself and not necessarily the content With that being said, let's begin. I guess that you could say that I am somewhat of the odd man out in my circle with respect to my friends, my family, etc. Because, one, I live abroad. As I said before, I live in Germany. And two, because I speak a couple different languages. And I don't say that with any sense of superiority or boastfulness or anything like that. I say that because both things have allowed me to see my own culture from the outside looking in. So if you're always in the middle of the story, it's incredibly difficult to see how it develops. And once you take a few steps back and you look at it, you see a lot of things that you've never seen before. And one of them is the language itself, American English. And there's this funny story I like to tell. I don't know if I've told it before, but... I think I'll tell it again because I find it to be a very, very funny story. So I took a couple of classes here in Germany to qualify for the university. And I had to do a presentation in German about an author. I think his name was Bertolt Brecht, I believe, but I'm not exactly sure. And so I had to do... A report about him, about his life. And he had to flee Nazi Germany. And he went to the US. And I did the whole report. It was about 40 minutes. It was a presentation. And at the end of the presentation, one of my classmates came up to me and said, um, your presentation, it was really good. I really enjoyed it. But um, I noticed that you were nervous. And because of that, I noticed that you were American. I could hear your American accent, and I said, "Well, what do you mean by that? What was, what was the most American thing, about my German in that moment?" And she said, "The R sound," and I was still kind of confused, and I said, "What exactly do you mean by that?" And she said, "You know, Americans they really like to use their R, so rrr. <laughs> and I just had to, had to laugh because I'd never ever analyzed my English before, because it's my it's my native language, it's my language of birth, it's the language I use the most, well, before I went to Germany, and it's the language I feel the most comfortable with. And having someone else tell me about my own language was extremely fascinating to me. And so that was the first time that I really realized that that we speak with this r sound that americans have r and of course there are plenty plenty of dialects within the u.s where this is not the case Um, this is very typical of some accents in the south for example the official term is known as roticity so if you take for example standard british english and standard american english that is the most obvious distinction between the two now this is respect This is with respect to the standard languages. So standard British English, also known as received pronunciation, and standard American English, also known as general American. But I've kind of explained this in a couple other episodes, so if you're really interested in knowing what some of the fundamental differences between the two varieties are, please check those episodes out. I don't want to necessarily go down that road, because like I said, I've already discussed that. But I do want to go right instead of going left. <laughs> and what do I mean by that? I mean talking about English words um, and how they've crept into a couple the languages, plenty of languages actually. And that's why I mentioned the fact of me being able to speak a couple different languages because once you have learned at least one language you realize how how much they've been influenced by English. Now, it should be noted that a lot of this influence is generally from American English, although it doesn't actually matter because uh, Americans and Brits, for the most part, use the same words, so it really doesn't matter. So this presents an interesting conundrum. And what I be, what do I mean by that? A conundrum is basically a problem and each language has its own way of dealing with these words. Some of them completely reject them out of hand and some of them embrace them wholeheartedly, um, almost as a gift like thank you for giving us this new English word. And I'll start off with German because it's the one I know the best and German is kind of in the category of thank you for these words <laughs> because a lot of the a lot of the technical words related to internet cell phones computers uh, programming a lot of those words are directly lifted out of English and they're not changed at all really so if you take the word internet it's the same like there's no difference there's no German word for internet it's not that you couldn't create one it's just it doesn't exist at all um, and then you have the problem of two words existing side by side so if you take the word to download in german you would have the native word herunterladen so that literally means to download but you also have the word downloaden um, and with the second word, you obviously hear that, you know, it's, it sounds very English. Um, and so you have the choice, which one do you take? Do you take the native German word or do you take the English word? And the answer to this question really depends on one, where you're from in Germany and two, how old you are. If you are, I would say more from the North and you're young then you typically use the English word because you want to be cool and modern. If, however, you are a bit older, and maybe from the South, but not necessarily, but the most important factor is being older, um, then you will generally drift towards the German word, I would say. Now, this is a very simple example. The biggest problem is that it causes people to forget their own native words if we take a step back and go to english english has as i've stated in a couple other episodes been highly influenced by french italian and latin and they've been influenced to the point to where we've basically lost a lot of our dramatic roots a lot of the dramatic words And you would be forgiven in thinking that French and English are directly related, like siblings, brother and sister, or sister and sister, or brother and brother. It doesn't matter that they're directly related, when in fact, they're cousins. Um, They would be cousins. That's how I would view them. And it's only when you dig a bit deeper that you realize that English and German are actually brother and sister. Um, the English and German are actually directly related to one another. And that is a very interesting fact. And it's not that bad in German, I would say. If you go back a couple a couple decades, well, not a couple decades, if you go back about a century or so, um, you had a whole bunch of words from French and German, more so than you do now. So, a very funny example would be Mariage was a very typical word in German, which, of course, is French and related to the word in English, marriage. But, it kind of fell out of use. Um, You also had the word in German Exemple, but now it's "Beispiel." So, German has kind of reclaimed a lot of the words that it lost. Whereas with English, well, they're just, they're gone forever. Um, Unless maybe you're an English major or something. In that case, they're not. But for the average English speaker, a lot of these dramatic words are gone. Just, they're gone. So if we switch gears a bit and we move on to French, because French influenced English. And this example to me is a bit funny because it seems like it's, do you, I don't know if you know the expression of life imitating art. And that basically means that people create this work of art. Um, and eventually this work of art turns around and influences us. So it's kind of a, a paradox, I guess, if you will. And so in the beginning, well, actually not in the beginning. In the 11th century, France and French were very popular. They were very well respected, they were um, the language of the nobility, the language of the educated, the language of the upper class, and so on. And so obviously not everyone could learn the language. But it had sort of, I would say, a trickle-down effect, wherein once the upper class was sort of saturated with the French, that that kind of trickled down to the commoner, so to speak. Um... And when you get up to like the 15th century, you'll realize that the entire English language consists of nothing but French loan words, really. And a lot of the Germanic words just kind of died out. And if you examine modern English now, you'll see that we have a lot of doubles. So if you take the word, for example, pig, pig refers to the animal, but you would never say pig meat. It sounds a bit odd you would say pork. And what about cow? Well, you wouldn't say cow meat, you would say beef. And the list goes on and on and on and on. And like I said, I've talked about this in another episode, so I'm not going to go full into depth. But, now if you come to the modern era, so after the Second World War, you'll see that a lot of English words Are making their way back into French. And it's really funny because they're creating words that don't necessarily exist in English. So these are pseudo English words. What does that mean? That basically refers to words that don't actually occur in English. Theoretically they could though. So they look like English words, they sound like English words, But no native English speaker would actually understand these. They would never actually use them. So a couple of these are, for example, footing. In the sense of to go for a jog, for example, to go for a run. You would never say, I'm going to do a footing in English. That doesn't exist. Um, Or using shampooing as a noun. So, for example, to do a shampooing. Um, but you would never say that in English. That's something you would say in French, though. And the list goes on and on and on and on. And there, these are, of course, like I said, fake English words. They're pseudo-English words. But they're obviously real ones. So, for example, weekend is uh, very popular in French, or marketing, for example, um, or smartphone and to list all the words would be somewhat obnoxious because I would say it's nearly infinite and the French really love their language <laughs> they really love their culture and the one way they get around this is by having a governing body for their language known as l'académie française and its job the French Academy, by the way, its job is to protect the French language and to make sure that it is not overrun by all these English words. And they basically decide which words are official. Now, it should be noted that this body doesn't actually have any real authority. At most, they're, they have soft power which basically means, hey, if your native language is French and you want to speak French properly, then you should use this word and not this word. Um, One famous example is Walkman. Walkmans no longer exist. They haven't been around for almost, I don't know, 30 years maybe. And the French Academy said you shouldn't use the word Walkman in French. What you should use is, I believe, was balladeur, which is kind of like a dancer, so to speak. But (laughs) that never caught on. That that never caught on. And people said Walkman. Another analogous situation in German is the word for laptop. And the Germans use the word laptop. It's from English. Lap and top. And there's no official body in Germany um, that regulates the German language there are a couple of small bodies that do give suggestions you do have the official dictionary which is known as Duden. it's the german equivalent of webster or the oxford dictionary and it is the go-to source if you're unsure about grammar if you're unsure about the spelling of a word um, unsure about its definition that is the one you go to so to speak I hope you'll forgive me for not knowing the exact name of this group, but there are a few governing bodies in Germany, but they're even less powerful than L'Académie Française. One of their suggestions for not using the word laptop in German was using the word Klapprechner. And this consists of two words. Klappen, which is so like... um, to close something, or it can mean that. And then Rechner, which is computer. And so it's basically a computer you close, because that's what it is. (laughs) And in English, a laptop is a computer you have on your lap. Suffice it to say, this never caught on. And you don't say this in German. I don't think anyone would understand what that is. Um, And everyone just says laptop. And so if we... Take a step back and go back to French, then we see in the beginning it was French influence in English and English accepted this wholeheartedly. If you wanted to sound educated, if you wanted to sound elegant or noble, you either spoke French or you did the next best thing and you made your English sound as French as possible. Maybe this is still a thing nowadays, but I I doubt it, to be honest. Um, I, of course, do know a lot of French, a lot of native French, and a lot of French and English. So I kind of play both sides, so to speak. Um, so that's, that's very interesting. If we switch to another gear and go to another language... Um, that I'm also very fond of and I'm currently learning that is Japanese. And Japanese is very unique in the sense that it has an extremely, I would say, overly complicated writing system. And it consists of four components. It consists of kanji, which are Chinese characters, um, katakana, hiragana, and romaji and these four so kanji are the symbols hiragana and katakana are what's referred to as syllabaries and that means that a consonant and a vowel are grouped together so a basic cluster would be something like and they also use the roman alphabet japanese Japan by extent were for the longest time closed off from the majority of the world So they had a policy of not interacting with foreigners, but once they changed their mind and they started interacting with um, Other countries and other cultures One thing happened that was inevitable They started importing a lot of words from other languages a lot of concepts for the simple fact that they didn't exist in their own language a lot of these were medical at the time because they were importing a lot of words from the netherlands and the dutch were the first that were actually allowed to be in japan without being persecuted so a lot of the technical terms that exist in Japanese today are originally from Dutch. Um, I unfortunately do not have an example off the top of my head, but I, I will get back to you on that. But if we fast forward a couple hundred years later, because the interaction with the Dutch was in the 16th century. If we fast forward to after the second world war, Japan is Rebuilding its economy, rebuilding its legacy, rebuilding its country, everything. The country's destroyed. And so the Americans are, with the help of, I believe, the Marshall Plan, please correct me if I'm wrong, they're rebuilding Japan. They're rebuilding their Constitution. And so Japan imports a whole bunch of words from English. Hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of words from English. And it's nearly impossible to speak Japanese, I would say, and maybe if you're native and you really try. I'm not native though, obviously. It's nearly impossible to speak Japanese without using English loanwords, And most of the words that are imported into Japanese are from American English. And it's interesting because even though kanji in of themselves are relatively complex and complicated, they do have a couple of advantages. The first being is they have a physical component to them because kanjis for those, for those of you who do not know, they're composed of radicals. So it allows you to see it as, I don't want to say a picture because it's somewhat, somewhat false, but it allows you to see a structure within the kanji. It allows you to recognize how it's created And by using these English loan words, a lot of that goes away. Um, And Japan also has a whole bunch of fake loan words, and I think it's super interesting. One of the most famous fake loan words in Japanese, I think any person who's learned Japanese for more than 10 minutes knows, is Sarariman. So, a salary man, And salary salaryman doesn't exist in English. It's not a native English word. I believe the equivalent of that in English would be a white-collar worker or someone who works in an office. And so, yeah. So, that's incredibly interesting. That's just one example. I don't want to sit here and list a whole bunch of examples from Japanese. So, if we recap from French... German and Japanese we realize how much our language so for the American listeners listening <laughs> how much American English and by extent British English have influenced other languages I think that this is a blessing and a curse at the same time and what do I mean by that so no matter where you go as an English speaker, of course, you will always see your language in one shape or another. So, everywhere is home, basically. And you know that by knowing this global language, so to speak, that you'll always find some way to find your way, (laughs) so to speak. But that's a blessing and a curse. That's a double-edged sword. Because you fall into this trap of not wanting to actually learn another language. And for the simple matter, is that it's not necessary. And I would say that English speakers are sometimes too practical, too pragmatic for their own good. There was never really a, a need for me to learn German. I was simply fascinated by the language. I was simply fascinated by the culture, so to speak. The same is true for French and for Japanese and for all the other languages that I've dabbled in that I've kind of flirted with but never really never really went anywhere. There was never a need but an interest. So that, that, that's the negative side of being an English speaker is people are always so eager to talk to you in English. They're always so eager to practice with you And it's kind of a fail-safe. So, let's say you're stuck in the middle of Russia. And you really want to learn Russian. And it doesn't always work. Maybe you stumble. Maybe you forget some words. Maybe you see something embarrassing. But if people notice that you're struggling too much, well, they'll help you out with English. And on the one hand, maybe that's comforting. But on the other hand, it's kind of annoying. Because the only way you get better... Is by failing. You learn from your mistakes, and you start anew. I know that has happened to me a couple of times in France and in Germany, but I just stick to English and say, I don't want to speak English. <laughs> I just want to speak French, or I just want to speak German. Most people will respect that, but some people will be kind of annoyed because they don't want to sit there and be your language partner for five minutes. They just want to get on with their day. So, that was it for today's episode. I wanted to make it a little bit more about language and about how English influences other languages. And there are many, many, many examples that I did not list. If you are interested in this topic, I would recommend that you check out uh, Icelandic and how they deal with loan words because it's fascinating. I promise you. With that being said, Thank you so much for listening. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, then please uh, join our Discord and you can send your comments and questions directly to me, or you can contact me by email, which is linked on the podcast website. All right, thanks again, and enjoy the rest of your day.